I was on an elevator one time in, um, in Ohio, in, and uh, Akron, Ohio, actually, and I was going up, and several nurses came on the elevator, and uh, they were all giddy and having fun and so forth, and I figured out that one of them was getting married that weekend. And uh, as they were sharing, I said, how wonderful, and I congratulated her. And in the process, I said, I hope you have 30 to 40 years of a good, strong marriage. And one of the other ones said, 30 to 40 years? <laughs> it's almost unheard of in this day. And I said, yeah, I've been married for over 40 years. And then she came back and she said, to the same woman? <laughs> <clears throat> and I said, no, she's changed. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes it work. We've got to grow and we've got to change and we've got to do things sometimes differently and work together and that's what makes it happen. And for you to do it for 60 years, that is amazing. Uh, we thank God for you. Now this morning we're going through Psalms as I mentioned and I'd like for you to turn to Psalm 93. There's also an outline in your bulletin. It'll help you as you follow along with this message, and you may just want to jot down one or two thoughts as you hear what I'm going to say this morning. But in Psalm 93, we don't have a very long psalm, but it is power-packed, and there's a lot here. And as we begin to think about Psalm 93, I want you to think for a moment, how do you picture God? If you had a friend at work or a friend somewhere else in the community who got into a fairly serious conversation with you sometime and, and they asked you that question, what is God like to you? How do you see God? How do you picture God? Why are you so enamored by God? What would you say? Where would you begin? How do you see your God? Now in Psalm 93, we begin to get some hints as to how we might answer that question and how we might see our God. And as you're <clears throat> looking at Psalms 93, one of the things you're going to pick up right away is the psalmist who wrote this psalm just has the picture of a sovereign God in his mind and in his heart. He doesn't actually say that. But you just see it and you just sense it. And Psalm 93, by the way, is the first psalm in a series of seven psalms which emphasize who God really is and who emphasize how God works and how God works in our lives. And if you want to take on an interesting assignment this week, I would encourage you to read Psalm 93 to Psalm 99. You can do one a day because there's seven of them. And they will share with you and what I'm going to say this morning over and over again. And they will build in your mind and in your heart as to who God is. And you will end up at the end of the week Pretty, good, pretty well getting a picture of who God really is in your mind. Now, we've got those seven psalms. <clears throat> they describe who God is. But if you go back to Psalm 92 and start with verse 8, you get kind of a summary of what you're going to hear and what you're going to see. Because back in 92, verse 8, it says, But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. And that's why we say this psalmist sees a sovereign God. God is exalted, the psalmist is saying. That means he's the king. That means he's the ruler. That means he's the beginning and he's the end of all things. 
That means that there is nothing more important, there is nothing greater than being a servant of this God, to be a part of the family of this God, and to be involved with him, the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and has power beyond anything you and I could ever imagine. Now, as the psalmist has that kind of God in his mind and in his heart, he does say some things that are very important to us. In fact, in verse 1, he wants us to know that God is majestic. He starts out by saying he is robed in majesty. And he says it twice, so it must be very important to him. So he's saying that the first characteristic of God, the first thing you're probably going to think of or want to think of, is that we have a majestic God. And when one generation begins to describe God to the next generation... Who is this God? What is he like? How can you picture this God? He's saying that there we should start with his majesty. And when you start with his majesty, what are you saying? You're saying what God is like, and you're, you're building on the fact that with God there's dignity, with God there's power, with God there's glory, with God there's victory, or as the young adults often refer to him in their singing and in their words, they say, we have a God who is awesome. That's a majestic God. He's He's associated with not only glory and victory and power, but his kingship, as it says in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, is over all the heavens and it's over all the earth. Where do we see his majesty? How do we know that? How do we explain that? Well, if you get into this psalm a little bit, you see that his emphasis, and it's often the emphasis of the psalmist, his majesty is seen in the creation. The majesty is, is seen in the skies. I get up about 3 a.m. in the morning, and when I do that, I, uh, my first thought is I'm going into the kitchen and have a drink of water. I, I really do that because there's other things in that kitchen. And I, I never get out of there with just water. I get out of there having to have water because I'm thirsty after what else I get into. But I was there one night last week, and our kitchen windows look out to the north and a little bit to the west, and as I was looking out, it was 3 a.m., and it was dark as can be, and I was overwhelmed with the stars. I've seen them a thousand times, maybe more, but I couldn't believe how many there are and how bright they were, and as I looked at that sky, I said, yeah. That is the majesty of God. You see, he's saying, too, his majesty is scattered throughout the earth. And he makes an emphasis of the fact that it's in the depth of the seas. Where is his majesty? It's felt in the wind. It's felt in the thunder when you're in a storm. It's felt in the quiet beauty sometimes of a blue sky. It's always in the sunset. <laughs> We've been on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean many, many times as we've taken our vacations with our kids growing up. And, and the kids go back in the albums and start looking at the pictures we've taken. And do I get ribbed because I've always got seven or eight pictures of the sunset. And they say, Dad, why'd you take so many pictures of the sunset? I said, because it's not like anything else. Once you've seen one, you haven't seen the next one. You haven't seen them all. Every one of them is different. And every one of them speaks of the majesty of God. 
Well, the Bible says it's not only in creation, but we see the majesty of God in his act of redemption and in his acts of judgment, and we see it as he deals with mankind, with you and with me every day of our lives. The prophet Isaiah one time was going through a very tough time, but he went into the temple. And when he got into the temple, he was kind of crying out to God, and he was feeling sorry for himself, and he was sharing all that with God. And he says, when I was in there, however, I had a vision of God, and I saw the angels around him, and they were saying, holy, 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 the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah was overcome. He began to realize that he was just looking within and he wasn't looking without. He began to realize that all of his problems had to do with how he was going to figure things out. And he forgot to put himself into the hands of a mighty God. And when he came out, he said, My eyes have seen the King of kings and the Lord Almighty. And woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. You jump over to the New Testament. And the New Testament is filled with the majesty of God. It's seen in the presence of Jesus Christ. He takes a boy's lunch. His disciples are looking at him and watching him and probably smiling behind his back. What is he going to do with a boy's lunch? There are 5,000 men with families sitting out in front of Jesus who are hungry. And they are just dumbfounded as he starts to keep taking that lunch and handing it out and handing it out, and he feeds them all. That's the majesty of God. He approaches the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus has been dead for a few days, and he's already beginning to smell. You wouldn't want to be even in there. But Jesus stands outside, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And they're all standing around and wondering what's going to happen. And out comes Lazarus. The majesty of God. He's in a boat and he calms the sea. He reads the minds of his enemies when they're out there in the crowd and he puts down every one of their arguments. And, and you can watch Jesus Christ and you see one miraculous thing after another and you see the majesty of God in everything that's done in his life. Who can fully describe the majesty of God? If he were to walk in this sanctuary this morning in the flesh, you know what you would do? You'd fall down on your knees and you'd worship him. You wouldn't be able to do anything else because the majesty of God would be walking right into this sanctuary in the flesh and you couldn't do anything else. Get a picture of the majesty of God and then realize that that God who's so majestic knows you by name and he loves you and he cares about what happens to you and you become overwhelmed with what you have in God. Well, the author's not only impressed with the majesty of God, he's still in verse 1 and he's impressed with with, with the power of God as well, after saying Christ God is robed in majesty, then he goes on to say, and he's also armed with strength, and this is how he describes it. Notice verse 3, the seas have lifted up, O Lord, the seas have lifted up their voice, the seas have lifted up their pounding waves, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. 
For 14 years, we lived in Florida. We um, often went over to Daytona Beach. We were not that far away from it. And Joan's parents would come down and spend sometimes two months, sometimes three months. They hung out in a trailer not too far from us, and they would be with us quite a bit. And always, just before they went back, we'd go back one more time to the beach. Now in Florida, to be down there in March or April or whatever, it's often windy and it's often cold, and it's different at the beach at that time than when we usually go. We went over to the beach one day, and it was a windy day, and the sea was really rough. And I was out on a surfboard, and, and we were having a, just a great time. But after coming in on three or four rides, I fell off the surfboard because I got hit by a wave that I didn't see and didn't anticipate, and it really threw me for a loop. When I got knocked off that board, I got into the undertow, and before I knew it, I was really far <clears throat> from shore. Now, I'm a swimmer, but I'm not a great swimmer, and I began to, not panic, but I began to work like crazy to see if I could get my way back to shore. And I wasn't doing very well, and then all of a sudden I got hit by another wave that was stronger than the one that pulled me off of the board, and that thing took me for the ride of my life, and it literally threw me right up on the shore. And when I got there... I was all knocked out, out of breath, and I had the right of my life, and I sat there and I thought about, oh, man, I was trying to get into that shore, but it wasn't too hard once I got hit by that wave. And my strength, I could see, was not anything near what I was up against with the power of God. It's amazing how many times in the Bible we see the power and the strength of God illustrated through the sea. In Isaiah 17, he talks about the raging sea. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 50, he also talks about the roaring seas. The psalmist over and over again talk about surging seas and pounding seas to describe the power of God. There's a man by the name of Frank DeLitch who writes about the sea. And as he writes his stories, it's very interesting if you're interested in that kind of thing at all, because he's talking about the constant unrest of the waves of the sea and the ceaseless pressing against the solid ground and the foaming up that comes up around the rocks. But then he also goes on to say something about God. And he refers to the God who created those seas but not only created those seas and lets them ferment and lets them toss us around at times, but the God who sustains those seas and controls that force in that power that those seas have, and he does it moment by moment. He has the power to do it. And that's power beyond our comprehension. Let's come at it another way. The usual word for God's power in the Greek is the word dunamis, which comes from the word dynamite, but it's a little bit different than the word dynamite. Dynamite power is sometimes described and is the word sometimes used by several of the psalmists and the prophets. But when we generally see this word in the Greek in Scripture, it refers to what we would call a dynamo, and a dynamo is just as strong as dynamite, but its power isn't quite as obvious. Its power is quieter, it's controlled, it's steady. 
It's unlike the excessive bang that comes out of sticks of dynamite. This is an inward power. This is a different kind of power. This is the power that's displayed in the lives of saintly Christian people. This is the power that's there in the life of someone who is going through some real suffering and some real tough times and, and there's no way of getting out of those suffering tough times for a while and as they go through it, however, you see that they have a special strength. People watching that person say, he's got to have something that I don't have. He's got to have something special. That's the power of God working in that person. It happens sometimes to these people who never experience a miracle when they go through life. Their life is really quite ordinary, but day in and day out, they're faithful. Day in and day out, they're honest. Day in and day out, they're there for whoever needs them. Day in and day out, they're there and bringing joy to others. Even though they haven't been involved in anything special, they know there is a God, and they love that God, and they're related to that God, and it makes a difference in their life. They're faithful as a spouse. They're conscientious as a parent. They do a responsible job when they're in the office. No one has to tell them to get back to work. Maybe they're working out in the mill. They're dependable. Nobody has to watch them. Maybe they're adults in middle age caring for parents and the parents are irritable and you watch them still care for those parents and still love for those parents and still do what they ought to be doing for those parents. And, and you're just amazed, how can they do, do that? That is the power, the dynamo of God working in the life of that individual, released from an awesome, powerful God who does know us by name and never leaves us and gives us that kind of power when we need that kind of power. Remember, if you are struggling, God's power is incomparably great. If the, G if the Father God can raise Jesus from the dead, it's that same power that can raise you above your circumstances when you trust him and really put yourself in his hands. Well, we're almost ready to leave verse 1, but not quite. We've got to go to verse 1 and then verse 2. And there we find out that God is immutable. Now, that's a theological term, and let me make it easy for you. It means it's just that God is unchangeable. He says God is unchangeable because he uses the word here, established, and that's what he means. He's saying the world is firmly established, and then he goes on to say, and your throne, O God, was established long ago. This quality of God is the one that separates him from the highest of his creatures. God is unchangeable and no other part of his creation is. Take the material universe. It's in constant change. It's decaying. It's running down, whether we realize it or not. It almost goes unnoticed. The sun is actually cooling and it's eventually going to die out. The abundance resources of the earth are exhaustible. We already have species that have become extinct. And each of us grows and matures until finally we get to the point 
where we just die. Nature is in constant flux. But not only is creation changing, there's other things that are changing. Technology is constantly changing. Just try to keep up with it. Just about the time you get something down, just about the time you know how something works, just about the time you get this little thing or that computer or whatever doing exactly what you think it ought to do, and you know how to do it, and you know how to function, and you know how to correct mistakes and so forth and so on. Big announcement, something else is out, and it's all changed. It's all different. The value of our money is constantly changing. If you haven't been out of this country in three years, you're going to be shocked when you go out, depending upon where you go, what that dollar is worth today, just compared to three years ago. TV is very different from it was five years ago. Medicine and medications are constantly changing. What's good one day is not acceptable the next. Human nature is restless, and human nature is changing all the time. The variableness of human nature is unbelievable. You can watch people watching Jesus and following Jesus, and they get to a point where they say, He is the King, let's, let's worship Him, and they have a Palm Sunday, as we call it now, and they get out there and they praise Him, and they say, Hosanna, and within a week they want Him crucified. We have a friend whose name is Cheryl, and when she was in her 50s, she was kind of lonely. She bumped into a single man at a church function. They got talking and enjoying some conversation together, and it was wonderful. He called her during the week, and he said, let's go out, and he really took her to a nice place. Piano music, the whole works. And over a period of just a few months, he was there for her, he listened to her, he took care of her, he got her out to eat and got her out to plays and he did all kinds of things. And she got him home after the wedding and woke up the next morning and she was with a new man. He was everything but what he put on and pretended to be over the last three, four months. He was demanding. He wanted to get married so he'd have somebody to take care of him. His whole thinking was different. That's human nature. But God rules today in the same way he's always ruled because he's unchangeable. And God loves today in the same way he's loved all down through the ages. And God cares for us today like he's been caring for people down through the period of time. And the, it says in Psalm 33:11 that the plans of the Lord stand forever so the message for us is, are you ever frustrated by the inconsistencies of the people around you or the constant change that's going on? Is there a world that you're in that sometimes you wonder, can I count on anything? Then it's important to know that our God is dependable and our God is unchangeable. And our God is an anchor that you and I can use. And God is trustworthy and maybe the only trustworthy thing that would come into our lives. You see, how he loved you when you encountered him the first time is how he loves you now. And that's how he's going to love you in your later years. This God who understands you, and by the way, he understands you better than anyone else around you. There's no one that understands you like him. You ought to talk to him more than you do. Because when you talk to him, he understands your heart. He understands what's going on in your mind. He's getting the picture. And he does 
when you pray to him tomorrow, he's going he's gonna to understand. And when you pray for, to him five years from now, he's going to understand just why you're saying what you're saying and what you're feeling. And he accepts you forever. There's all kinds of people that really, you know, accept you for a while, but just do this and they're on their way. No matter what it is, he accepts you. He accepts you. He is the one anchor all of us have, and he's promised that every good and perfect gift from above can be ours. That pushes us on to verse 2, where we find out God is eternal. And that idea is scattered throughout the Bible. Abraham called God the eternal God in Genesis 21. Moses, who wrote three psalms back, Psalm 90, he started out by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or, or, or you brought forth the earth and the world, you are everlasting to everlasting because you are God. John, in Revelation 21, describes God as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The angels were around God and watching him, it says in Revelation 4, 8, and the word was, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's never going to change. All of this means two things. First of all, God can be trusted. He's always going to be there. He's always going to be what he reveals himself to be, and he's going to be there at the end of your days. And he's going to be there at the end of your days just as he was at the beginning. So he, and he will not change his character, and he will not change his expectations, and he will not change his love. He will not change any of that because God's character is perfect in every way. And because he's perfect in every way, he's never going to break his word. What he says in his word, and what he promises you, and what he's told you he's going to do, he's going to do. But it also means that he's inescapable. We may try to ignore him, but he's still going to be there. Ignoring him is never going to work. Because there's coming a day when all of us are going to give an accounting to him and it says our hearts are going to be open to him and our desires are going to be known because he's been with us all the time and he knows everything that goes on in your life and mine. He's eternal. Then lastly, we get to verse 5. And we see that he's also the ruler. Now, you would think when the psalmist got here, he would say, listen, you've got an eternal God, you've got an awesome God, you've got a powerful God, you've got an eternal God, and he, all majestic God, you've got all this thing. And he'd come around to us and he'd say, so I want to tell you this, you need to stand firm. You need to be praising the Lord. But he goes on to say it in a different way. He says, no, there's two more things you need to know. You need to see how God rules. He's a ruler, but he's a wonderful ruler. First of all, he rules through his word. Verse 5 says, your statues stand firm. God's rule is not a rule of power alone. His statues, he says, stands firm. And what he means is he rules his people by his word. And the Bible is his word to us. And he's saying his word can be trusted and it's true all the time. And the Bible is reliable. It's not like people. We run to people all the time when we're struggling. We want to know what they think. We want to know what they have to say. And, and here's, here's, here's what we ought to go to. 
Because the Bible doesn't change. And it doesn't mean one thing today and something else tomorrow. So those of us who know God and confess Jesus Christ as our Lord, we must know his statutes because that's going to be our guide. That's going to be the discipline. That's going to be the direction. That's going to be how we're going to know how to go in a life like this. And we need to be ruled by him by what he says here. And the truth is we cannot, be, we cannot claim to be ruled or guided by Jesus unless we know what he's told us in his word. So we read it, and we apply it, and we work to understand it because we want to be his child and we want to do it his way because we know he wants the true self to come out of us and he knows what's best. And as we read it, we love him back. But the second thought is he rules through holiness. He says, holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. What he means there is everything associated with God is holy. So if we're going to be associated with God, we must be holy too. If we're not holy, how can we reveal God to others? How can we make known the love of God? How can we show forth the power of God? How can we demonstrate the majesty of God if we're not holy? And the truth is, if we're not, then we probably won't do those things. In fact, we might dishonor him. Now, when we talk about holiness, everybody gets scared. Ah, I'm not holy. I've heard more people tell me, oh, I'm not holy. That's for the, that's for the deacons, not for me. But listen, holiness is simple. You know how holiness starts? Holiness starts when you confess your sin. When you open up to God and really talk to him about the sin in your life, as it says we're to do in John, 1 John chapter 1, when there's confession that's real, when you keep short accounts with God, when you name the sin instead of the generalities of saying, oh God, forgive me of every sin. No, God, I tried to be important in that conversation this afternoon, and so I said something that I never should have said. God, I'm so weak at that point. I need your help. I need your strength because I want to change that. And when you begin to deal with that, something happens in your life. You might want to ask the question, why do I sin? Yeah, why do you? Why is it so easy? We have God's supernatural power, it says in the scriptures in various places, to stop sinning. And what are we doing with that power? Now let me give you a hint. Do you know it's tougher to stop sinning than it is to find out what obedience is and be obedient? Start finding out what God wants you to be. Start digging to find out what God wants you to do. Start working on that, and guess what? The more you work on that, the less you're going to sin. And that's how you get started with holiness. It basically deals with this inner life and your relationship with Christ and how you deal with that inner life and you get those areas straightened out. Yeah, he's going to deal with honesty in your life down the road. And yeah, he's going to push you into relationships and help you to work with relationships. That's all going to come and that's part of it. But this is how you get started. And Peter says... That's what God's people ought to do. Because in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, 
Because we're a chosen people. We're a, we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people who belong to God. So that we can go out and declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Well, when you've got a God like we have, who wouldn't want to be his child? And who wouldn't want to know him better? And who wouldn't want to follow a majestic? a powerful, an unchangeable, an eternal God who's going to forgive you of every sin and know you by name and always be there for you. God bless you as you think about these thoughts.